So um, whether you're coming here this morning as a longtime believer or someone who's wrestling with faith, if you're online and you're watching this service today, maybe you just stumbled on this service and, and, and you're sticking with it for a few minutes to see what's going on. And, and so in, min, in many ways, what we're doing this morning is we're on a pursuit for greater meaning in life. What, what we're saying is what we've experienced so far or the struggles in life or the fact that all of our hair is gone, that's not our meaning in life. That's not what we were born for. There's something more. There's something greater. We're pursuing that meaning and purpose. Surely just sitting there and watching TV is not what I was born for or struggling or doubting or being anguished or seeing something in the world that's just not right and something in you says that's not right. It shouldn't be like that. Somebody ought to do something. And so we're here this morning, whether you're online or whether you're assembled, because we're, we're engaging in that pursuit, that search. It's almost like a treasure hunt. We, we know there's something valuable in the life that we're living, and we want to find it, and we believe God is a part of that. So as we engage in this message this morning from Titus 3, if you've got your Bibles or your notes, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3. We're on a pursuit for meaning. And God wants to involve us in a great plan. This church, uh, the things that Drew shared this morning, is a suggestion that this is a culture that says there's something that I'm supposed to be a part of that makes wrong things right. Amen. The suffering that exists in our community is wrong. It's unjust. And, and, and what's wild is it doesn't have to happen. There are solutions for the great problems in our world. And I believe that God is inviting us to be a part of it. And so when God corrects wrong things, he always does it in community. That's important for you to hear this morning. God always brings justice or brings healing or reduces suffering through the work of a community, through a body that comes together. Because together we can do more than we can do all by ourselves, amen? And so uh, that's what this church is all about, and that's what the loving the neighbors focus of this church is all about. Together, we're, we're supporting each other as we pursue meaning and value and as we bring healing to our community. So um, devotion to the basics is the word this morning. I, I want to tell you that sometimes the faith life it's kind of like football. It's kind of like football. Uh, so as we, look at, as we look at Titus chapter 3, think about Titus as the head coach. Paul is the general manager, or he's the team owner, and he's coaching up Titus. And uh, Titus is trying to set up a thriving team in a, very, in a losing culture. So Titus is the coach, and he's trying to set up a, a team that's going to that's going to not only just survive, but thrive. And in Crete, in the island of Crete, they have an uh, absolute losing season for generations. And so uh, they're 100% faith failure culture. And so every tip that, that Paul is going to give Titus is vital. Every tip is, is vital. It reminds me this morning, as I think about football, of, of Coach Vince Lombardi, uh, who coached the Green Bay Packers back in the 60s. That's when I grew up. You know, Lombardi would always have the big coat, and he would have the cool uh, 1950s hat on. Lombardi transformed the Packers in two seasons, from perpetual losers to five-time champions. In fact, 
the Packers won the very first Super Bowl. You know, you might remember that, Drew. They, I think they played the Kansas City Chiefs. So the Packers... <laughs> So the Packers were the first winners, and the Chiefs were the very first losers. Would that be, am I speaking truth here this morning, church? So, In his book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, author Dave Moranis describes Lombardi walking into training camp in 1961. Here's what um, Moranis writes. He took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, this is a football. Lombardi was coaching pro athletes who just months prior had come within minutes of winning the biggest prize of their sport, and yet he started... From the very beginning, Lombardi's methodological, uh, methodical coverage of fundamentals is continued throughout training camp. Each player reviewed how to block and tackle, something they learned in grade school. They opened up the playbook and started from page one. So this morning, here's my question. What are the fundamentals of the faith life? What's the blocking and the tackling of faith life? Because uh, our call this morning as we experience the book of Titus chapter 3 is to advance Christ in our world. Let's pray. Lord, um, what do you want to build our faith lives on? Lord, help us to receive this word this morning so that we can grow to become the church and the individuals that reflect your love in a a way that changes our world. Help us to look like your love. Help us to reflect your love this morning, Lord, in a way that changes our world. Help us to receive it, Lord, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So as Drew has preached through Titus, in chapter 1, Paul is coaching Titus, to start with leadership first. So as Paul builds the church in Titus, you you need to really look at your leaders. Your leaders are going to mentor and model and influence what the church is going to be based on. In chapter 1, if you go back and think about it, he uses the word truth over and over again. Paul uses the word truth over and over again. And so when he's thinking about leadership, leaders reflect what truth looks like. In other words, they're not going to tell you truth. You just watch them. They're going to show you truth in every area of their life. The climax of the chapter is in verse 16. And, and Paul, writes, Paul writes this. And he's challenging a contrary negative leader. And he says, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. This is vital. This is a vital word to us. Uh, our lives must demonstrate truth. It, in other words, we prove things are true by the way we live. And that's vital for us today. Every one of us is a leader in demonstrating what Jesus looks like or proving what Jesus looks like. In chapter 2, Paul coaches Titus to build some basic doctrines or principles around which this, this new church in Crete would, uh, would follow. And each one of these core principles in chapter 2, each core principle directly is directly tied 
to how the Christian impacts the lives of everybody around him. So are these core principles in chapter 2, as he's building this faith team, the, the life of the Christian is really central to how we impact and engage, uh, as Drew said, the, the guy in the next cubicle or someone in your family or someone in your neighborhood. The faith touchdown is how we treat other people. Our living like Jesus is the core faith truth. Coach Lombardi again said this, The will to win is not nearly so important as the will to prepare to win. Think about that word this morning. So remember, Paul is coaching Titus. He's setting up, um, he's setting up a church in a perpetual church-killing society. The culture is really toxic to faith community. And so Titus is called to set up a team to win, to win over the long haul in a culture that crushes church. So set up leaders and then set up doctrines. And the doctrines that are core to a successful faith team are those that influence how we impact the lives of others. And, and so Lombardi says, the will to win is not nearly as important as the will to prepare to win. The will to prepare to win. That's what we're about here this morning. We're going to prepare to win. We're going to prepare to win in this call to be the lovers that reflect the truth of Jesus. Then in chapter 3, Paul begins to really, uh, he really, he wants to drive this home. He really wants to illustrate this life of love. And so he, he, uh, he illuminates these core principles by impacting others by contrasting seven virtues to seven vices. So open uh, your Bibles to uh, Titus 3 verse 1 and read along with me uh, as I read out loud. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So Paul mentions seven virtues and then seven vices. Let me walk you through these briefly. Number one, be subject to rulers. This is a really challenging word for us right now. Be subject to rulers. You see, by being good citizens, we live as an antidote to chaos. So you might point to school board meetings right now as an example of chaos. In Jefferson County, right now, the police department sits out in front of the houses of school board members. That's not right. Because there are so many death threats against people that are elected and make no money just to support the success of the school district. That's chaos. So by being good citizens, by obeying the laws of the land, we live as an antidote to chaos. Number two, obedient. The word that Paul uses here, it means more than what you or I might normally think of as the word obedience. It means that we, on purpose, give up our individual rights. Obedient. Number three, um, I, I, good catalyst. Uh, you, you, 
to live the life of good means that we create good. We're actively, proactively causing good. We're a leader of good in every uh, engagement, every relationship. Uh, in fact, we insist on good. So there, there's never a situation that you're in, that we're in, that we don't insist that good advances. Number four, refuse to insult. Do I really need to define that? I mean, really, church, refuse to insult. That, we, that needs to be defined? That there would ever be a question that a Christian is going to engage in a work situation or on Facebook or on social media or over the Thanksgiving table with the most irritating human being that you're related to in the world, refuse to insult. Number five, peacemaker. We're, we're tolerant. The, the phrase there means that we, uh, we discipline our, um, our inner person to be anti-aggressive. Number six, considerate. Uh, the word that Paul uses there means uh, an indulgent consideration of the faults of others. An indulgent consideration of the faults of others. Gentle. What, what Paul means by that is that our temper is completely under the control of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Wouldn't that be awesome? That This is the most challenging list I've ever studied. Thanks, Drew. Really appreciate it, brother. That, that the Holy Spirit would dominate all of our emotions. And so we're not, the circumstances around us don't tell us how to feel, and don't tell us how to treat other people. The Holy Spirit does. Can you imagine living like that? This is an invitation for the Holy Spirit to dominate all of our emotions. He says in, in verse 1, remind, remind. So at halftime, the coach doesn't come in and launch some new play on the team. He goes, all right, guys, blocking and tackling. Dude, you're not... Remember the basics. Remember the fundamentals. Go back to the fundamentals, blocking and tackling. If you guys will just do that, man, we're going to crush this team. That's who we are. This is who we are. Don't give in to the pull of the world to become like them. We're gentle. We're considerate. We're peacemakers. We refuse to insult. That's who we are. This is the fundamentals. This is the basic. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. Without these virtues, the gospel is wholly ineffective in our culture. Did you hear me this morning? Without us living this way, the gospel cannot be effective. You can put on the best worship. You can have this incredible preacher. You can do whatever you want to with your building. You can do incredible ministries. But if we don't live these virtues, the gospel will be ineffective in our culture. Verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, Enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We, we, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Seven virtues versus seven vices. Foolish. 
The phrase there and the context from Paul means that we're just unable to discern what the Holy Spirit is saying. By foolish, it doesn't mean that you can't do algebra. For those of you like me that have been chosen by God to not have to worry about math, they created calculators just for us. Foolish means that you don't see that this is inconsistent with the character of Christ. You're not feeling a prompting of the Holy Spirit that you should never say or do that. You, it doesn't bother you. You don't notice that that's racist to be that way? Really? Foolish means you've just shut off the capacity of the Holy Spirit to move you. Disobedient. Disobedient means you, you resist divine and human authority. You don't show respect where you ought to show respect. Deceived. In the context of Paul's teaching, deceived here means that crazy, lunatic narratives just dominate us. It's just real easy for some crazy story to come blowing through, and we just get pulled into it. Passion, slave. The impulses and cravings of what's normal and human just kind of guide us. These impulses just control us all the time. And so you're all the time saying, I'm sorry, you know, I'm Irish, and so I have this anger problem. That's a vice. That's counter to what is going to be effective for demonstrating Christ and advancing Christ. Malice and envy, it's really two phrases in English that's one, one idea. It means we give our mind over to evil. Being hated. I'm going to use a phrase here we don't use a lot but you'll immediately sense what it means. Being hated, we've become comfortable with being loathed by others. It doesn't really bother us that other people just don't like us at all. Yeah, those neighbors, you know, they're jerks. Hating. It's become comfortable for us. It doesn't bother us that we harbor ill will for others. Paul says, at one time we too, at one time we too, verse 3. The Christian life, the Christian life is emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually lived within close reach of our past sin. That doesn't mean that our past sin creates guilt, but it stirs up grace. Because we live very close to the fact, man, that's the way I used to be. And so... I can't believe God saved me. This is amazing. God wants to use me. I'm on, I made the team. You know, I got kicked out of Little League football. And I make the team. I'm, on, I'm, I'm one of the high school stars. Our life can have meaning through the power of the Spirit. Salvation, our, the fact of our salvation never produces pride, but instead patience and peace with others. The fact that we've been saved creates this unusual capacity to give peace and be patient with other people. Verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by His grace, 
we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is an invitation to anchor our minds, to anchor our lives in the spirit of gratitude. The winning team in Crete must disentangle their thinking. Their, their thinking cannot be dominated by, by social media controversies, by, by politics. In, in fact, this, in the same spirit, Paul, when he's writing to the Romans in Romans 2, verse 4, he writes this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That fact of God's grace, his love for us, dominates the way we engage and experience the world around us. Paul says, don't you get this? God's grace is our number one focus. We anchor our thinking each moment of the day, not in the news, not in what we don't have, not in the injustices we've experienced. We anchor our thinking in gratitude. It changes us. By anchoring our thinking in gratitude, it changes the way we feel. It changes the way we engage others. The number one character trait, how we influence others, is God's love. We have been loved. So we channel that love because we anchor our minds there. There's a word, the direct translation is a word that I've never heard anybody use. It's called bignity. Bignity. That word bignity uh, would mean something, something along the lines of we are an inexhaustible well of giving away blessings to others. Can you imagine entering your workplace or your family and there's an inexhaustible well of blessing others? Like there's nothing they could do. Like there's nothing they could say. They just can't make you stop blessing them. We live so connected to the Holy Spirit that we become God's vehicle of demonstrating and proving His grace. You see, God's only plan, God's only plan is that His love and His grace for all humanity would be mediated through the church. That's God's only plan. It's not going to be a great preacher. It's not going to be um, great money or technology. It's going to be the way we live. Lombardi, another Lombardi quote, winning is not a sometime thing. It's an all-the-time thing. You don't win once in a while. You don't do things right once in a while. You do them all of the time. Winning is a habit. Unfortunately, so is losing. They claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. So there's good news this morning. If you're sitting there going, wow, there is a big gap between me and what, what Reg is describing this morning in God's love, I'm with you. There's good news. If what we're putting out there on the field of life is a long way from the virtues that we read here, we can change right now. We can change this morning. 
We can commit together as a community. We have an ambition and a desire. We see a big gap, but we want to do something about it. And we, we realize as we confess together and as we, as we seek God's Spirit together, God can do something in us so he can do something through us. God can do something in us so he can do something through us. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That word devote, devotion, that connotates constant attention to the craft of love. I'm going to devote myself to love. Without love, nothing that we believe matters. Uh, uh, love is our touchdown. It's our Super Bowl. So uh, I use the word craft. The, craft, the craftsman, if you know a, uh, a craftsman woodworker, like you've got to pay attention to what you're doing. You've got to constantly, you don't ever own it. You're, you're just very attentive. You're always developing the craft of woodworking. Otherwise, one day you're going to be out there in the garage listening to music and cut off your fingers. And so it's a craft. You don't own it. You hone it. You refine it. We're, we're, we're devoted to the craft of love. So let me be honest this morning. I'm not really that into football. I, I, uh, my kids grew up. They did, we didn't watch very many games. Uh, I, I, there's something about the competitive spirit that just sort of bothers me. But, um, but there was this football game that I read about that I... Uh, a story I want to close with this morning. It, it was a football game, a high school football game in Ohio 20 years ago um, between the Waverly Tigers and the Northwest Mohawks. And I think it demonstrates Paul's point here in Titus chapter 3 real well. Northwest coach Dave France and Tigers coach Derek DeWitt spoke together before their big high school rivalry crosstown game. But they, but they weren't talking about they weren't talking about strategy or they weren't, you know, smack talking each other. They were talking about one of the players on the Northwest team, a handicapped player, senior, Jake Porter. Jake, Jake has a disorder called chromosomal fragile X. Um, he's dis disabled or you, what you would call special needs. But, but uh, Porter shows up for practice every day, and he dresses up in full gear. They have a whole uh, uniform for Porter, and shows up at the games. But, uh, of course, he's never taken a snap in any of the games. And Coach France wanted to end that streak, his last game of the season. So Porter, um, Coach France said, Porter can't take a hit or anything like that. But like if the game's not at stake, I would love for him just to come out on the field and maybe take a knee. So it's the game, and, and uh, with five seconds left on the clock, Waverly is just killing Northwest 42 to nothing. And so the coaches meet out on the middle of the field, and uh, so... So Waverly's coach, DeWitt, says, hey, I tell you what, let's let him score. And France is like, no, no, you know. And, and the refs came and they got to talking and said, yeah, that'd be, let's do that. Let's let Porter score. And so France is like, okay. 
And so they're at the 49, they're at Waverly's 49-yard line, and, and Porter is sent into the game as a tailback. And in the huddle, his, his, his play is called, and uh, the ball is snapped, and it's handed off to Porter, and all 21 players sort of part. And uh, Porter starts running, and he's surprised, and, and he, and he kind of turns around back to the line of scrimmage, and everybody on the field is like, no, go that way, including the defensive players. They're like, come on, come on, go that way. And so uh, Zach, Zach Smith, uh, one of the, the Northwest tailback, says, I think he was a little confused at first, but once he figured it out, he took off. <laughs> and so... Uh, the 49-yard trek to glory took about 10 seconds, and it was culminated. It was culminated by all the players and everybody on both sidelines was running step by step and cheering with Porter all the way to the end zone. Tears flowed from the bleachers for over an hour. And the life of one young man was changed forever. Coach DeWitt, at Waverly, we didn't do anything special. We were just happy to be part of that. That young man was just excited to get the ball. Our guys didn't care about being shut out. When you're involved in a moment like that, you just want to make sure you end the game with class decency and respect christian is that how you're playing the game with class decency and respect are you living proof of the gospel of god's love i'm going to pray close out my part of this experience this morning and I'm going to invite you, I'm going to invite you to lift up your whole life to the Holy Spirit and ask God to put you in the game. Ask God to give you another chance to demonstrate, to prove the gospel of love. Because, guys, we're on a winning team and we're ready to engage and let the Holy Spirit lead us, change us, and move us so that our life is a living message.